uh, as you're turning to Matthew 19. Uh, last week's, we looked at three sections of Matthew 19. Lord willing, today we'll finish chapter 19. But uh, those last two or three songs in particular are very fitting for the section we had. And as it now spills over into this week's, so we kind of split that, to be honest. Uh, so we're going to continue that in a moment. So thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for those that are working with their kids. Uh, they don't know that I'm saying thank you because they're down there working with kids, getting ready to head that way. So very appreciative of them. Um, a couple of quick announcements. So if I forget, right, y'all don't let me forget. When I say amen at the end of this message and I'm all caught up in it, if I don't remember that we have a family meeting afterward, y'all remind me. <laughs> Uh, so what we'll do is we'll give like about five minutes after that, hit the restroom, especially if you got kids, go get your children and allow those workers uh, to make it in here if they want to come to that as well. That meeting will be for uh, Graceview members, okay? So I want to clarify that. Uh, if you're a regular attender, you're part of the Graceview family, but that meeting will be for, for those that have taken the step of membership. Uh, the second thing, just for clarification, um, when Brandon said Wednesday night, uh, he said, we'll be going out canvassing. He means he and those that will be working with him. Uh, so if you're doing the Philemon Bible study, we will be doing that in the fellowship hall. And if you've not been doing the Philemon Bible study and you're able to, come this week. All right? Come on out. So we'll be doing that in the fellowship hall. He'll be gathering uh, the children and those that will be helping him. And some of them will be going out and canvassing uh, for the upcoming VBS two, that begins two weeks from today. All right. Appreciate what he said about... Uh, our friend there is in Uganda, right, that you had mentioned from Africa. Um, and so I was noticing that Brandon said that he's really blessed. Just sounded like it was just by the music and the worship. So anyway, um, <laughs> Brother Moses, I'm sorry you don't enjoy the preaching. But no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. I've never met that man, but I want to meet him. I hear uh, Brandon says he's, he's the modern-day Apostle Paul there in, in the country of Uganda. So... Very grateful that our, our website and our stream service is able to be a blessing. So, all right, we've got a lot to cover today, um, and we do have a meeting to follow, so we'll be conscious of that. Matthew 19, if you were here last week, uh, let's refresh. If you were not, you're going to get the real quick skinny. So, it's the month of March. Jesus is literally days away from dying on the cross. He has healed multitudes near the Jordan River down in Judea, so he's left Galilee, and I don't know, but presumably some of those same people that he were healing are going to be calling for him to be crucified in a matter of days. He starts moving, heading toward Jerusalem. They're going to cross the Jordan River. We're not given details. He's going to head toward Jericho. But along the way, a young man that's called a ruler, and we know that he's wealthy, like very wealthy, runs up, bows before the Lord. And I'm not going to reread the passage, but I'm going to kind of paraphrase Putting the three gospel accounts together, the young man falls on his knees. Again, very wealthy, young ruler. He has authority. He's powerful. He falls in front of Jesus and says, good teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? So right off the bat, we noted that this young man has a theology of performance. What do I have to do to have eternal life? Well, Jesus knows his heart, and he's going to work with him. But first thing, the second thing Jesus does is he accentuates his own identity. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why did you call me good? Jesus does not deny that he's good. He says, why do you call me good? Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one that is good, and that's God. That's important foundation. 
because of what the Lord's going to say at the end of the passage. Jesus, again, I can't re-preach that, but he is emphasizing what you just said was right, but don't say it in lightly. I want you to understand the weight and the significance. I am God that you've just asked this question to. So now it moves on. And reading between the lines, the Lord's dealing with him this way. If you have a performance-based theology and if you want to do something to earn your way to heaven, then here's the answer. You're going to have to keep the commandments. You keep the commandments, you'll be fine. The man asks, which ones? We know the real answer ultimately is if you want to keep the commandments as a way of going to heaven, you have to keep all the commandments. But Jesus doesn't say all of them. He just wants to reveal and uncover his sinfulness, so he gives him six commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your father and your mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. The man has such theology in a way of viewing the commandments in himself, he honestly thinks, oh, I've done all those things from my youth. Well, he hasn't, but he thinks he has. And so rather than let it slide, the Lord gives him one more command because the Lord needs to expose and uncover his biggest besetting sin. He has just said, I obey God when God gives a command, and he's just said, yes, I love my neighbor as myself, always do. And he's called Jesus who's good, and there's only one that is good, and there's God. So Jesus as God gives him one more more command. So you do what God says. I'm getting ready to tell you to do one more thing. You say you always love your neighbor as yourself, so do this one more thing. Go, sell what you have, get the money from your possessions that have been sold, disperse it to the poor, and then you come back and follow me as a poor person. And the man walks off in great distress and sorrow because he has great possessions. He has many possessions, like many possessions. He's extremely, what we'd call ultra wealthy, more than the other disciples by all appearances. He walks away filled with sorrow. So with that in mind, picture him walking away. Now we're going to read verse 23. Here we go. And Jesus said to his disciples, again, he's walking away. He's no longer talking to this man. Jesus used this occasion to talk to his disciples. Truly I say to you, don't read that lightly. The the Lord's drawing emphasis. Fellas, what I'm about to tell you is absolute truth. You ready for it? Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. See him going there? Fellas, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. As if that wasn't enough, the Lord emphasizes again in verse 24. Again, I tell you, You want some perspective? You want to put it in context? Let me tell you something that's easier than a rich man entering the kingdom. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I'll not do a show of hands. I know many of us have heard a potential rendering of what that may mean. That has to do with gates of cities and and camels and bowing and skirting through. Okay, throw that out. There is no evidence of that. Sound like a great idea. There is no archaeological, no, no literary evidence of that. So take the verse for what it stands. Here's what the Lord says. I tell you, it is easier for a camel, camel, to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person, a rich man, rich person, to enter the kingdom of God. Let it stand on its own. When the disciples heard this, they were, notice the next two words, greatly astonished. I read that the word astonished was not strong enough. It requires the word greatly. They're astonished. No, they're greatly, they're blown away by what he's just said. 
This is massive new information. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? If that's true, who can be saved then? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. So now he's graduated from only with difficulty. He's given a picture in verse 24 that makes us arrive at the word he uses in verse 26. Now he flat out says it. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Verse 27, we'll start our second section today. Verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Did you catch it? Well, wait a minute. We have left everything for you. What then will we have? So verse 28, Jesus said to him, I'll tell you what you get. You get to not go to hell. That's what you get. No, that's, I misread that. That's not what that says. <laughs> Though he could have, and we'd think that's the right answer. Jesus goes along with Peter. He doesn't rebuke him for such a question. Well, what do we get? We actually did leave everything. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, in the new world, the renewed is the idea. The word there means the renewed, the regenerated world. When the Son of Man, Him, will sit on His glorious throne, you, the you there means these disciples, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. He's talking to the 12. Again, he's using this as a, as a, a number representing a group. We know that Judas betrayed the Lord, gave up his spot, and a man named Matthias will fulfill this prophecy and promise. So again, verse 28. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Does that answer your question? You're going to get something. And, that's you, now he pans out, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother, or children, or lands, like farms and lands, property. Everyone who's left those things, any of those things or all of those things, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But, I'll go ahead and tell you verse 30, finishes this section in verse 30, kicks off the parable in, in chapter 20. So it's the transition verse. But many who are first... Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Two main sections in our text this morning. Notice number one, the shocking truth about riches. It's the shocking truth about riches. I'm going to start you off with a note in just a moment. So before we jump into what Jesus is actually saying here in verses 23 to 26, let's cover quickly what Jesus is not saying. I feel like I need to hit this. And I know many of you know that, but some people take a passage in 1 Timothy, couple it with passages like this, and they reach some wrong, muddled conclusions. So let's clarify exactly what Jesus is saying by first starting with what he's not saying. 
Number one, note, Jesus is not saying, let this sink in, in our minds, let's get this good theology. Jesus is not saying that money is innately, inherently evil or that the rich must of necessity and automatically be of a low character type person. So he's not saying rich people are automatically have low character and he's not saying that money is evil. Furthermore, the Bible as a whole, get this, does not promote poverty in and of itself. Poverty, you said, sound like it's promoting poverty in this passage. Not poverty for poverty's sake is not being promoted. Or we could also say that the Bible does not despise wealth for its sake. Remember, wealth is not inherently evil. I'll really shorten it because he had a couple of pages and it would take me too long to cover it. But R.C. Sproul really helped me get a grip on this passage because he starts out saying a biblical kind of a summary of what the Bible teaches on why are some people wealthy and why are some people in poverty. And so he gave a great overview and I want to kind of hit some highlights and I'll finish with a quote from him. First of all, biblically, this wouldn't be totally exhaustive, but if you were to study the Bible and come up, why are some people living in poverty? He offers four things that the Bible puts forth. Number one, and this would really be the main one. This is the largest group of people who live in poverty. Listen, don't get offended. This is actually true. Most live in poverty because they are slothful and they refuse to work or they squander their resources. So again, here's the point. If you were to go this past week and follow those who are living in deep poverty and just follow them and literally just watch them with a camera and just watch them over the last week, what you would find is that they were not working or working very little and they're not working in a way that is productive and contributing to the community and so they're not earning any income. They're not doing anything to earn anything and so, yep, they're struggling. Is that everybody? No, that's not everybody. That's one group. He continues, some are victims of calamity. Some are victims of things like sickness, and it could like really set them back for a while, or it could literally define the rest of their life. Calamity is hit, sickness is hit, and as a result, they be- that's when charity is needed. He offers a third group. This is an important one. Some are victims and are exploited by unscrupulous people in powerful positions, the greedy, the powerful, often in the history of 2,000 years since this was stated, it's been the powerful rulers who oppress people under them and abuse them, be it masters or kings and rulers. In other words, the people are out working, they're just not benefiting. It comes down in our day to those who own companies or who are bosses, who exploit their workers. They way underpay them for the value. In other words, they're going to keep an abnormal amount for themselves and not let the workers, kind of got them over a barrel. You need this job, I know it, so I'm going to underpay you. And they take advantage. They get wealthy. Meanwhile, these people are held back and kept in poverty. And then, of course, there's a fourth group of people, and that is those who choose poverty for Christ. That's a biblical. But now, why are some wealthy? Sproul also mentions some are wealthy because they inherit wealth. It happens all the time. In fact, he went into how the Jews are encouraged in the Scriptures to work in such a way and be wise with their money so that you have something to pass on to your children when you leave this world. Don't spend it all on yourself. Pass some on. Will some passed on to you? Then pass it on to your children. So there's inheriting. But then here's the quote. So here's a biblical view of why are some wealthy. He writes, There are those who are wealthy because they are crooked, unscrupulous, and unmerciful toward people. 
So these are the people a while ago were their victims. Here's the people who are on top, making them the victims and exploiting them. Notice, he writes, they're wealthy because they're crooked, unscrupulous, and unmerciful toward people. Translation, they break laws. They cheat. They straight up steal. There are people in the world today who have a lot of money because they stole it from a bank or they stole it from a rich person or they stole it from multiple houses or they stole it from the company in one big fell swoop or they embezzled it over a long period of time. They made this much, but they, they found a way to get the company and they're, now they're rich and they got it by cheating and stealing or by oppressing people, working them and not paying them properly, again, keeping an abnormal amount for themselves. That's how some become wealthy. You say, is there any other group? Ah, said all that to hit to this point. He writes, then there are those who are wealthy because they've been industrious and have engaged in good stewardship of their wealth. And he talks about they do not squander their resources. They're wise with their resources. To finish the quote down the line and later in the paragraph, he writes, so let this sink in. The Bible has nothing but approval for industry, productivity, and stewardship. So the Bible is very favorable for all of those things. You need to be industrious. You need to be productive. And you need to be wise. And Lord willing, that will move you up as that happens, barring these catastrophic things or oppression. And so here, that's what the Lord does not say. Now let's notice what the Lord does say. Because Jesus is going to give us a very true perspective on riches. Earthly riches. What does the Lord have to say? You ready? Riches, ladies and gentlemen, so some of you are like, I'm not wealthy. I don't need this message. We need to get the right perspective toward wealth. If, if you are never wealthy in this life, you still need to learn what this message says because it's important for us what's going on in our heart. Here's the true perspective. Riches come with a cost. No matter how they're gained, whether you cheated to get it, inherited, worked hard to get it, the bottom line, when a person becomes like, I'm not talking about, oh, they're comfortable. Oh, they're well off. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you hit that status of being rich, like really wealthy, like this young man walking away, you need to understand that comes with a great cost. What is the cost? See, we instinctively, you're like me. This is me. We instinctively think the best life is the life in which you have many earthly riches. That's how we normally think. And along comes Jesus, if you're taking notes, write this down. It is actually, here's the truth about riches, the shocking, surprising, unexpected truth, is that it is much more difficult for a rich person to be saved. It is much more difficult for a rich person to live a godly life than it is for most other people. So whether you ever become rich or not, I want us to walk away this morning understand what those people are going through. It is harder for them to get saved, and it is much harder for them to live a godly life. And the last I checked, guys, getting saved and then living a life for the Lord is the main thing. That's what it's all about. And so these people are actually at a disadvantage in life. When it comes to getting saved, when it comes to being able to live a godly life, they have a harder position to be saved and to live a godly life from. I'm going to offer this. This is one little vein of this discussion. I'm going to say that riches, so let's put riches right here. Riches are very similar to morality. Can I offer you that? Riches, I mean like lots of wealth 
It's very similar to being very moral. Very moral. No one is sinless. We all sin. But some people go through life and they like they keep the rules and the laws a lot better. And they're like, you really have a hard time finding what do they actually do wrong? Listen, you say, how are riches and morality similar? Here's my proposal. Neither are evil. Morality certainly is evil. Having riches is an evil in and of itself. Catch this. We would certainly never tell the moral person, you need to stop being so moral. It's going to cause you problems. We wouldn't tell them to do that. So, Jeff, what's the problem with these two things? How are they alike? Here's the problem. When it comes to salvation, both riches and morality have a built-in danger that is called self-sufficiency. The rich experience self-sufficiency. They have to fight that. And the moral part, you understand that churches all across America this morning, there's probably multiple people in this room sitting here right now that fit this description. They're moral compared to other people around them. And they think in their mind they're a pretty good person. And so churches are filled with people who are outwardly moral, who think they're pretty good people, but they're going to die and go to hell if they only think that of themselves. Hell is filled with people who at one time saw themselves as a pretty good person. And so they have it. The rich young ruler is walking away, and it's though the Lord is saying, you see that man right there? He is a display of the power of riches. That man has a dual impediment keeping him from becoming saved. Number one, he's very moral, and he thinks he's a good person. He never wanted to admit it's sin until finally at the, at the end, the Lord exposed his lack of loving his neighbor as himself. And the other impediment was his riches. So here's a man who's walking, this is key, he's walking away knowing in his mind that Jesus, who he came and bowed before and called him good teacher, he knows that Jesus has just said by his standard, Jesus' standard, that he lacks eternal life. He lacks eternal life. Guys, do you understand? Jesus' standard is the one that matters. Jesus is the final judge. If I were standing here this morning and I in my heart thought I lack eternal life, Knowing what I know the Bible says about the eternality and the torments of hell, I would be so distressed if I were you and you're sitting there this morning or listening online and you're thinking, I think I lack eternal life. That would torment me. If I were you, I would not leave today until I talk with someone and say, I need help getting this settled. That's this man is going away. He knows Jesus says, I do not have eternal life. But he's okay leaving because he has chosen his wealth and his possessions because he loves his earthly wealth more than he loves his eternal soul and more than he loves Jesus. He's made a choice. So look again at verse 23 and 24. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why is Jesus saying this? Let's give four dynamics that are often taking place, why Jesus says that it's so difficult, yea, impossible for the rich person to enter the kingdom. I'll give you four reasons. There are no doubt others, but these four suffice. Number one, why does Jesus say this? Because a rich person may just assume that God must be fine with their life as it is. You think about it. I'm talking about the ultra-wealthy. How many of them have thought through the years, had this thought, you know what? If there's a God, sure there is. He must be fine with me. I mean, look, I'm blessed. So he must be fine with how I'm living. Huge problem. God is not fine with our sin. Our sin has separated us from God. Our sins will be judged either through Christ on the cross or we will pay for them in eternity in hell. Second dynamic. A rich person, this is important, 
often, so what's the problem? What's the holdup? What's the disadvantage? A rich person often does not feel an urgent need to get right with God. There's no urgent need to get right with God. Why? Because they're so distracted with the pleasures of life, the comforts of life. And frankly, they have access to comforts and pleasures and luxuries that we don't have. And so as a result, they're so caught up in that, that life is so good, there's no urgency as seen for the next life. The next life does not seem to be urgent because the comforts and pleasure of this life are so enjoyable. enjoyable. So they're just enjoying life, enjoying these pleasures, these comforts, these luxuries. Life is good. They hear the gospel, but they're like that third soil, if you remember the parable of the sowers, where the gospel seed falls on the soil, and this is that soil. It's the wealthy heart that all of a sudden hears the gospel and needs to get right with God, and though they may agree with it, they're not ready to give into it because that seed of the gospel is being choked out by the cares and pleasures of this life that are like thorns choking out good seed. That's them. Third, impediment for the rich. Number three, a rich person is usually distracted by the effort that it requires to create and maintain their wealth. So Jeff, you just kind of said the same thing twice. Nope, it's very different than the second one. The second one, they're enjoying the pleasures and comforts that comes with the wealth. So much so, eh, I'll get right with God someday. I just don't need to do it right now. I'm having too much fun. This one is they're very distracted with all the effort and energy that it takes to create and maintain the wealth in the first place. Let me just say it this way. When you have lots of plates spinning, and the wealthier you are, the more plates you have spinning. When you have lots of irons in the fire, you have lots of things going on. You have many, many possessions you have to oversee. That's a problem. That takes a lot of energy. That ta- this is not easy. This is hard to do. They have a lot going on. They just simply have more things. And so it takes a lot of energy. to over- it's, it's something they're willing to do. It's worth it because I get that comfort pleasure. But it sure takes a lot of energy. Barclay gives like three quotes today. The most insightful one I think that I'm going to offer is this one. This is very insightful. Catch what he writes. Once a man has possessed comfort and luxury. You get the idea? Once he's possessed it, he's tasted it. Once a man has possessed comfort and luxury, he always tends to fear the day when he may lose them. Man, what would it be like to go back? I don't want that. Life becomes a strenuous and worried struggle to retain the things he has. The result is that when a man becomes wealthy, instead of having the impulse to give things away, he very often has the impulse to cling on to them. His his instinct, literally his instinct, is to amass more and more for the sake of the safety and the security which he thinks they will bring. So in other words, there may be a time in his life where he wasn't that, and he probably thought, if I'm ever there, I'm going to be so generous. But then he gets there, and all of a sudden, not generous. It's cling to and hold on because I don't want to lose the good life. Takes a lot of energy, number four. Why is this such an impediment? Why is it so difficult? Why is this really, we could say, a disadvantage? Because a rich person, this is the main one, is used to trusting their riches to provide what they need. That's the main one. They're used to trusting. I'm talking about big money. You understand? Big money, if I need something, I get it. 
Let's get it. Make it happen. That's their normal life. Again, back to Barclay. Maybe not quite as insightful, but I'll throw this one out. Always remembering to say that y'all know that I don't agree with everything Barclay writes. But sometimes he writes some things. I'm just like, ah, got to say it. And I'll do the disclaimer, which I just did. Moving on. He writes the following. If a man is wealthy, he is apt to think that everything has its price. The world's full of people that think that. Oh, yeah, everything's got its price. You do. No, I don't. Yeah, you do. You will do what you don't think you would do if the price is right. No, I won't. You, you do. And this is the thought. It goes like this. If a man is wealthy, he is apt to think that everything has its price. That if he wants a thing enough, if he wants it enough, he can buy it. That if any difficult situation descends upon him, difficult situation descends upon him, he can buy his way out of it. Let me pause right there. This person may come to a point, I mean like real money, big money, and they think, I want to date a certain kind of person. Yeah, buddy, hey, listen, uh, your personality and the way you look, probably not. Nope, it will happen. Guess what? It will happen. It will happen. You throw a lifestyle and somebody can't refuse it, and they fall in love. And they, they, I want a certain kind of spouse. If I want it bad enough, I can buy it, and they do. Or, notice what he says, if any difficult situation descends upon him, he can buy his way out of it. How many times, I don't know, but it's been thousands upon thousands, how many times in the history of the world has someone who is super wealthy committed murder and been up for murder and tried for murder, but they don't get convicted? All the evidence was there, but something happened. What happened? They bribed a judge, they bribed enough jurors, or they hired someone who will go threaten a, a judge or threaten a judge's family or threaten enough jurors or threaten jurors' family. In other words, I will buy them. And all of a sudden, the verdict comes out. And like, what exactly happened? This is the dynamic. So again, let me do the whole quote. If a man is wealthy, he's apt to think that everything has its price, that if he wants a thing enough, he can buy it, that if any difficult situation descends upon him, he can buy his way out of it. He can come to think that he can buy his way into happiness and buy his way out of sorrow. So he comes to think that he can well do without God. I don't need God. What's the problem? Mark it down. You can't put the squeeze on God. You can't threaten God. You can't bribe God. You can't buy God off. No amount of money is going to buy his soul out of hell, but he's not used to that. Only with difficulty will a rich person, you see him going, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now verse 25. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, as already pointed out, these two, both words are important. They were greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? They were greatly astonished. This is like, this is like guys, Jesus has just said something that is like, no one has ever, no one has ever said what you just said. This is totally new revelation. Is this even true? It has to be true because you just drew our attention to it twice by saying, truly I say to you, again I tell you, like, but... Lord, this is such different thinking. Why do they say this? If you're taking notes, write this down. Like the Jewish culture of their day and all around them, the disciples just assumed that wealth was evidence of God's favor on someone. They're wealthy, especially in the Jewish culture. It's like these are God's most favorite people. Obviously, that's why he's given them all these things. In their mind, these are the most blessed in their mind, if you were to think of it this way, like here's the starting line, this is where we're all at, 
And over here, salvation, in their mind, we're back here, and the wealthy don't have very far to go. Like, no, they're already up here. This is shocking. This is mind-blowing to them. In their mind, they're thinking, if the most, the perceived most favored people in all the world cannot enter the kingdom, then how do any normal people or how does anyone else have a chance? I think what's going on in their mindset is something like this. Lord, verse 23, you said how difficult it is. And then you use this word picture about a camel. That's not difficult. That's impossible. Lord, you said it's difficult, but then you give this picture, it's absolutely impossible. And what's the Lord's answer? That's what I'm trying to tell you guys. It's impossible. Like, why is it impossible? These are the best. They have the shortest distance to go. And the Lord's like, no, no, no. What you don't understand is they're still here, and, and this is where you got to go. We're all here. They have to go over all of this. You just have to get to here. They have it harder than you do. That's what I want everybody to understand today. So before you just think, man, I just wish, and if I was in charge, I would be careful what you wish for. It's not all it's cracked up to be. It's very challenging. It's impossible. Let's take a grammatic pause. Not a dramatic. Take a quick grammatic pause. Look at verse 26. So you need to look at it. So hopefully you got a Bible there. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. What does the word this point to? Jesus looked at them, the disciples, and said, with man, as far as man's ability, this. What is the pronoun this pointing to? Salvation. You see back at the end of verse 25? So go to the end of verse 25. Who then can be saved? With man, this, being saved, is impossible. This is what the Lord wants us to know. Being saved is impossible. So what, let's take a couple of quick notes right here, and let's make a point. Why is it impossible for the wealthy person, and why is it impossible for any man to be saved? In other words, this whole camel thing, how difficult that is. And the Lord says, oh, it's impossible. Number one, it's impossible because no one can save themselves. Number one, because no amount of money, staying in the context of the text here, no amount of money can buy salvation. No amount of money can buy, like guys, no amount of money. I thought about this. I don't know this to be true, but I'm, I'm under a pretty safe assumption. I don't think our world has ever had a trillionaire. Y'all know that's a whole other thing, right? So I'm not going to do zeros on the board or anything like that. We have billionaires, and we have tens, people that have tens of billions. But a trillionaire, to my knowledge, now I'm not talking about medieval kings and land, and if you were to liquidate all that, I mean where they can put their hands on, I have this much money setting aside. I'm talking about if you were to take the 15 or 20 most wealthy people on the planet today, put them all together, they still wouldn't be a trillionaire, I don't think. What if someone was a trillionaire? Trillionaire. And they're coming to the end of their life. And they need to make things right with God. They may think, I'll offer God a trillion dollars. And God's like, I don't need your green money. I don't need your metal. I gave it to you. I don't need it. It's an impediment to you. It is something that's been holding you back. It is actually a disadvantage to you. If you dare think, coming to me, they're impressed by that. I'm not impressed by that. That will buy you nothing. 
But really what Jesus teaches in verse 26 goes much broader than just the wealthy. Why is it impossible for man, as far as man's ability, with man, it's impossible for them to be saved. This being saved is impossible for man. Why? A few weeks ago when we were talking about children, we noted that all people, you and I included, enter this world, and as we live our life, if left to ourselves, we instinctively think the way to be saved is by what? Being good. Be good. We all think it. All the man-made religions, that's the method of being saved. Do good. Do something that is viewed as good. Do enough of it, often enough. Don't do bad. Start doing good. You'll make it. That's our thought. So here's the problem. Why is it impossible for mankind to be saved? Write this down. All people, all people are born with a dead spirit. Here's why it's impossible. We're born with a dead spirit. You have a body. I'm looking at your body. Your body is here. It's alive. You have a body. You have a soul. You have a spirit. But your spirit is born dead. And because it's dead, it's separated from God. It is unresponsive. Your spirit is totally unresponsive to God's truth. That's how you're born. So here's why it's impossible. No one can be saved until God awakens. Your King James word quickens our dead spirit so that now when we hear the gospel, we're able to understand the gospel and we're able to believe the gospel. Guys, what I'm saying, the reason it's impossible is we all have dead spirits. And it's not until God, who it is possible, God has to come along and quicken and make alive our dead spirit to hear and really understand and then really believe the gospel. I saw this literally played out in front of my eyes just yesterday evening. Just yesterday. I'm looking and we're talking. Deanna and I have a conversation with someone and I'm just literally watching that dynamic, how the struggle that... No matter how we put salvation, only God can make it come alive in this person's heart and life. And we, we pray that that will. Maybe it has. Looking forward to a follow-up. So here's the lesson. It's impossible for any man to save himself, but God can and will save anyone who asks him. But here's the problem. Most people will not ask him, especially the who? The rich, not going to ask him. Put another way. Notice the, end, the second part of verse 26. The second part of verse 26. But with God, all things are possible. Only God can strip away the wealthy person's trust in their riches. Their trust in, only God can peel that away. Only God can show the rich person their urgent need for Christ because they're not feeling like it's urgent. Only God can do that. And that's why the Lord says, only with difficulty Will a rich person enter the kingdom? Take a note. No matter how wealthy, no matter how moral, again, I think these two go hand in hand. The really good person, they're at a disadvantage almost. Don't, do not walk away and say, hey, I, I know a really good person. They're really struggling to get saved. I think I'm going to go tell them they need to go dive deep into sin so they'll see their need. No, don't do that. Nor would we say, hey, rich person, you need to just go, so get rid of it all so you can see your great need. God has to do this. No matter how wealthy, no matter how moral, no man can save himself from the penalty of sin. I've worded this next note on purpose because it's going to sound very strange. I want it to sound strange because it makes the point. No man can save himself from the penalty of sin, but God is so powerful that he can save anyone, even the rich. 
even the moral, even the rich, even the moral. Because that's not how we think. We don't think, oh, God can save even the rich? God can save even the moral person? Yes, he can. Then why the word even, Jeff, to draw special attention to the difficulty of saving the rich and the moral or the rich and moral? Guys, we have a habit of going through life thinking that the greatest display, the greatest display of God's grace and power is when he saves a really sinful sinner. Like even sinners recognize that's like a really sinful sinner. That's the greatest display of the power of God. Like a murderer. That's the greatest display of God's power and grace. That's what we think. Or the drunk who can't keep a job and abuses the family. Or the thief. Or the addict who struggles through life and has ruined their own life so much so that they start stealing by things from those around them or stealing things from their family to support the habit and then God comes in and saves them. That's the greatest display of God's grace and power. No, actually what the text is teaching us, the actual greater display of God's power is when he saves a rich person. That's the greatest display. Why? Because the exceedingly sinful person knows that God not, is not pleased with their life. The wealthy person thinks God must be pleased with my life. This exceedingly sinful person doesn't think I'm trusting my sin to get me to heaven. The wealthy person is thinking my riches are going to help me get to heaven. God will be impressed. At least this person knows they're in deep trouble. And so I conclude this first point, which is most of the message this morning, with the following thought, I'm going to propose this. I'm going to throw this out to you guys for us. Again, you may say, Jeff, I'm never going to be wealthy. I don't think. Not tracking that way. <laughs> right? But let's get the right perspective. I believe, I have a hunch that when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, or if you're unsaved, to the great white throne judgment. But I think particularly those of us who are Christians who will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ... Not whether or not we're going to go to hell, going to go to heaven, but what about our placement and our rewards? I believe that the more difficult the situation to live in and be faithful for Christ, the more difficult, then I believe the more it means. There's a conference in sports that has a slogan, it just means more, right? The SEC. If you win an SEC championship, it means more. Right, Brandon? See, that's, that's what he thinks means more if you win SEC than it does all the other ones put together. My proposal to you is the harder it is to be faithful for Christ, the more it will mean that you were faithful to Christ. So with that in mind, I started thinking, what kinds of people have the most difficulty being faithful? I thought of these people. Someone who just has chronic pain. I mean, that we don't know about. Some of you in here do know about it. Most of us don't. I don't know about this. They have chronic pain. Life is a struggle. It is a struggle. If they're able to be faithful to Christ, it's going to mean more. On that day, the Lord knows what they're struggling with. Here's one. Those in deep poverty, I mean extreme poverty, I mean like they don't know where their clothes are going to come from, where the food is going to come from. I mean like that would be so hard to stay faithful to Christ because they'd be wondering like, Lord, I'm trying to live for you. Do you not love me? What's going on? I mean, this is such a struggle. That's, that's tough. Most of us don't know what that's like. I thought of this group. Those who are living in abusive circumstances, trying to live for the Lord, and they're just getting abused. Or the big one, persecution. 
They're living for Christ and they're being persecuted for it. That has to be difficult to stay faithful. And here's one that I thought about, and here's kind of a context. When sin is so, so easily and readily available, I mean, it is right there, that's when it's tough to live for the Lord and be faithful. I'm not proposing that the Lord is going to grade on the curve, though maybe he will. Here's what I'm saying. Right now, in 2021, it is more difficult to live for the Lord than when I was eight, nine years old in 1978-79. It's just harder. Why? Because sin is readily available. I mean, today's children, it will not surprise me if the Lord does not look and say, all you other ages did not know what these people were going through. So before you come down so hard on them and write them off, just know they're dealing with temptations and examples all around them of evil. And, man, they're having to live in that. It's tough. Okay, Jeff, got it? I can kind of see where you're going. What's your main point for this text? It's this. Guys, I really believe that we may find that when we get to heaven and evaluations are made, let this affect your thinking. I believe that the type of person that we will find who had the most difficult position, the most difficult position from which to be faithful to Christ is the very position we all want. We want the position that I'm going to contend is the hardest position to be faithful. You say, Jeff, what is it? The ultra-wealthy, beautiful, healthy, highly intelligent, Extremely gifted and very charming person. They've got it hard. And some of you are like, I'd love to have it hard like they've got it hard. Right? Bring that hard on to me. Let, lay it on me, Lord. Lord, let it be me. Try me. Think about it. Ultra wealthy. I'm not talking about, oh, they're cute. They're no, 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 no. The best of the best. And they're in the prime of life. I mean, healthy in every way. Beautiful, gorgeous, handsome, whatever it may be. Highly intelligent. Very gifted, outgoing, winsome, funny, charming. You say, Jeff, why would that be so tough? Because they have to overcome every day the daily battle of I'm special. I'm so special. And it leads to pride and conceit. And everybody's reinforcing it. People are paying huge money for tickets, and they come out by the 50s and 60,000s to see me. Look how great I am. God, are you notice? Oh, you're not, you're not impressed. Oh, no, God's not impressed. But every day from all around, people want to get a picture with me. They want an autograph. Or they're powerful people who tell powerful people what to do. Everyone swoons. They just want to spend time. Just get close. Will you sign this? They've got it difficult. And here's my point. just goes to show we really don't always know what's best for us because if we had our way, we would assign ourselves those very things. 1 Timothy chapter 6. The last thing, and we'll go ahead to the second point. The second point's much shorter than the first one this morning. I think I might have said 2 Timothy. I meant 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. You're going in a moment. Look at verse 17. Can I propose, based off what I just said, the best position? You say, Jeff, if that's the hardest position, most difficult, what's the best position to be faithful to the Lord? Not on the screen. This is my opinion. Would you look at verse 6? Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. I believe verse 8 is the best spot. 
God is good if he puts you. God is good wherever he puts you. God really loves you if he puts you in verse 8. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. I believe the easiest position in life for a Christian to be faithful to the Lord is where you got your basic needs met. You're not really wealthy and you're not in poverty. And most of you are like, Jeff, that's where I live and it's hard to live for the Lord. Yeah, imagine if you had poverty or if you had extreme wealth and you had to deal with how easy and I could just buy it. I have anything I want, anytime I want. That's the hard life. So let's finish this section by looking at verse 17. Because Paul tells Timothy, who's the pastor at Ephesus here, one of the pastors, he charges him, this is his job, so I need to do it while we're hitting this. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them. Timothy, it's your job, charge them. Several things, some don'ts and some do's. Here we go. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Look at 17 again. As for the rich in this present age, so here's his list. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. You see that list? So here's the don'ts. By the way, wealth is relative. Many people around, most in this room, they would look at you as like, no, you're, you're rich. And most of you go like, What? You've lost your mind. Let me tell you. And they're like, you're rich. In my world, you're rich. Here's his list. I'll give you the note. To be rich is not sinful, but it is a test. God lets you be blessed in that way. It's a test. He's testing you. It's a responsibility, big responsibility, and it's a great opportunity. Wealth is a test. Wealth is a responsibility. Wealth is a great opportunity. Here's what we learn. This would be for all of us. Wherever you're at on the sliding scale of wealth, number one, please don't ever think that you're better than those who are below you on the scale of wealth. Don't ever think, well, my wealth makes me better. No, it doesn't. Number two, never trust your riches. Only trust God. Don't ever hit a point. I used to have to pray for my needs. I don't pray for them anymore. I just write a check. Wrong answer. Don't trust the uncertainty of your wealth. Also, I believe what's implied here, notice the verse nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Watch this. Don't delight in the things that your money can buy more than you ever delight in God. Be careful. Don't set your hopes. I'm so excited at this. I'm going to get to do that and go buy that. This is so excited. Do you get excited about God? Because you only have that because God gave it to you. Don't ever disconnect these things. Always make sure your delight is more in God than any of the things that he allows you to have. I would also add this where it says, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I would tell the wealthy person, when God allows you, enjoy the things you're allowed to buy. Literally enjoy them. God has given to you, so enjoy them. I think what's implied there is, always remember, God, you gave this to me, and bring God into the enjoyment so that it is literally done with gratitude and never self-sufficiency. And the last two thoughts are at the end. So don't, don't do those things. Do these two things. Ready? 
do good. Do good. Don't substitute generosity for serving. Don't ever think, my gift is giving. I have wealth, or I create wealth, and that's the end of it. I bless by giving. No, look at the text. He says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works. So he can't substitute. Now, at the end, he does finish by saying, now be generous and share. So yes, be generous, but don't ever let that be a substitute for serving. Number two this morning, back to Matthew. Back to Matthew, verses 27 to 30. And let's notice the promised reward of sacrifice. The promised reward of sacrifice. Good old Peter. Here's where we'll finish. Got to love him. Peter has a lot of flaws, but I declare some of his stuff we owe him because it leads to some good stuff. The Lord answers him, and we have this good information because Peter dares to ask. What everybody else was thinking, let's go ahead and say it. Yeah, they're thinking it. Peter says it. Verse 27. So watching the rich young ruler walk away, hearing what the Lord says about that, Peter puts two and two together. Verse 27. Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Hey, what are we going to get? We have left everything and following you. What are we going to get for it? Again, as I said earlier, the Lord did not rebuke him. The Lord gives him a good answer. You got just a moment? Let me, let me touch a few things here. Number one, Peter left his house. Peter left his business, his fishing business. Peter left his wife. No, 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 not like you're thinking. Peter didn't abandon his wife. Peter left his wife to follow the Lord. Why? Because that's what he was told to do. Left his house, left his fishing, left his wife. But if you really read the whole New Testament, here's what becomes very clear. He never sold his house. He apparently didn't sell his fishing business because after the Lord's resurrection, before the day of Pentecost, they go back fishing, apparently not knowing specifically what to do. So he just goes back fishing. Thought you sold the boat. No, he never sold the boat. Well, why didn't he sell the boat? He was not told to sell the boat. The rich young ruler needed to be shown his besetting sin. Peter and the others were just told, leave. So he's left his house, but he goes back when they're at Capernaum. It's still there. He's left his business, but he hasn't sold it. And he's periodically left his wife as he travels with Jesus in itinerant ministry. Why? Peter's attitude, give him great credit. It is total surrender. All he knows is he's out fishing. The Lord says, come, leave all that and follow me. He just starts following the Lord. Maybe a letter is written back home. Honey, just letting you know, I'm not going to be bad. Don't, you'll see me when you see me. He doesn't abandon her. He doesn't divorce her. That would be absolutely wrong from what's said at the beginning of chapter 19. Peter doesn't even know at this point that later on down the road, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, verse number 5, Paul is going to rebuke the Corinthian church because the church as a whole supports the apostles and the Lord's brothers, and he specifically names Peter so that their wives can travel with them on ministry. But at this point, Peter doesn't know that his wife is eventually going to travel with him in ministry and that the church is supposed to support both he and his wife to go on these travels. All he knows is, I've done everything you've said. You didn't tell me to sell it, but you told me to leave it and I've left it and I do whatever you say what do I get for it great question I noticed this stood out to me Jesus allows and even gives reward as a legitimate reason to sacrifice and serve the Lord Jeff Bartlett struggles with that 
Jeff knows what the Bible says about the depravity of man and the grace of God and how we owe everything to him and he owes us nothing. And yet the Lord allows reward. You say, Jeff, the word reward is not used in the text. It is used back in chapter 5, verse 12. So hear me. God, Jesus, offers reward as legitimate reason to sacrifice and serve him. It's okay. It's not the best reason. Serve him because you love him. Serve him because of all he's done for you. But, oh, by the way, if this helps you out, serve him because he will reward your sacrifice generously. Verse 28. Look at it quickly. Jesus said to them, you want to know what you will get? Here it is. Truly I say unto you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will have followed, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Take a quick note. I'm not going to develop this. We'll just touch it. This struck me. Jeff, did you notice that Jesus speaks about the world's renewal, his rule and reign from a literal throne on earth, And the disciples, the 12 disciples, we'll call apostles, the 12 apostles ruling and reigning with him, he talks about those things as matters of fact. Matter of fact. You want to know what you got? Here's what you're going to get. He talks about this world will be renewed. Now again, I would not die for what I'm about to say, but I believe verse 28 is talking about what we call the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And I think that as we get ready to go into that, that the 12 apostles are literally going to sit on 12 thrones, overseeing, ruling, judging, maybe judicially, probably more like the judges back in the time of the book of Judges in the Old Testament, overseeing. Guys, I'm not talking about like judging like our little dog sits at the back window and rules over his little 3,000 square foot kingdom in case a rabbit comes into his little kingdom. I ain't talking about like, ah. Uh, the 12 apostles, they're here to really whip us into shape. I think it's more of, here's what we're going to do for God, and they're taking the lead. And if need be, judicially, bring them into judgment. So did you catch that? The apostles are going to rule over a restored Israel, according to my, uh, uh, Romans chapter 11. Israel will be saved in a day. That remnant at the end, right before the millennial kingdom, they're going to be saved. This earth is going to have its curse limited. I'm not going to say totally removed because some people will still die when they need to. I'm not going to say that the sin nature is totally removed, but all the temptations. Do you all understand that right now as I'm talking, two men are in a fight somewhere in this world, and one's going to kill the other in the next minute or two? Somebody's fighting for their life right now, and they're going to lose. Do you all understand that all around the world, this thing we call the the chain, the food chain, the survival, right, The, the food chain, Right now, some animal is hunting down another animal, and there's an animal that's little heart's just a beating, and it's trying to hide, and it's back in a hole or back in some brush, and three or four dogs are trying to get to it, and they're going to kill it before this message is over. All of that's going to be gone. We're living in a sin-cursed world, and that sin is going to be peeled back, and the world's going to start producing like it really has meant to. This world has never seen a kingdom like the kingdom that Jesus is talking about and what the Lord is saying. Your place in that kingdom depends on the choices you make now. You boys have made the right choice, and for it, you're going to be ruling and reigning over the nation of Israel on 12 thrones. It's going to be good. Quickly, verse 29. And everyone. So the Lord goes from very specific you to now, verse 29, and everyone. So now he broads it out to a bigger group that may include us. Throw something out. What we're looking at in verse 29 is not tithers. What we're looking at in verse 29 is not tithers and those who give offerings. This is a special 
major life decisions. These are major sacrifices, which are over and above. You say, doesn't the Lord bless those that give? Yes, the Lord bless those that give, but this is a sacrifice the Lord is uniquely talking about blessing here. Look at verse 29. And not only that for you guys, everyone who has, the idea has past tense, when we get to that kingdom, looking back, here's what the Lord's saying, everyone who has, looking back, who has left houses, have you ever left a house? Everyone who's left houses or brothers, you ever left brothers or sisters or father, you ever left your father or your mother or children or lands for my name's sake. Say, so, yeah, we've had to move out and go get the big. Oh, no, 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 hang on. <laughs> For my name's sake, we'll receive a hundredfold and we'll inherit eternal life. So that's what's going to happen. Who is this group of people? I propose to you it's this group. Certainly all those who leave their home and leave their family and go to foreign lands to serve on missions. The Lord is taking note and he will reward their sacrifice. But maybe it's not even to another country. What about those who just leave an area and go, in our situation, another part of the country for Christ's sake? That literally is their motive. What about those who go maybe to another state? What about those who go to another area within the state or another part of the county? Or, you know what? We're getting ready to do something. or We're making a conscious choice for Jesus' sake. We're going to the other side of the town, or we're going just a few blocks away, but we're not going to be able to have this house. I love my house. This is my identity. I have all our stuff. We have all these memories here. I love this place. No, we're going to leave this because we just can't have that and serve the Lord. So we're going to give that up, and we're going to go over here. This group is those who've made decisions for the Lord Jesus Christ that has caused them to be persecuted, and they go in prison, and as a result, they're separated from their family, and they're separated from their house. This is the group of people who've made decisions for Christ, knowing that when they do it, they're going to lose friends, and they're going to lose their family. This is those who, because of their faith, their family will disown them and literally look at them as being dead. And the Lord says, you do that? And you're going to gain a hundredfold. Luke and Mark add a phrase that Matthew leaves off. In this time. Hundredfold in this time. And inherit eternal life. So I don't have time to unpack all that. Let me just say it this way. You ready? Let me just say. Eternal life is far superior than a hundredfold. Eternal life is the life of God. In the ages to come. Life with God in the ages to come. That blows away a hundredfold. But a hundredfold is massive. Whatever you sacrifice, it's going to require me to leave my family. Oh, by the way, Luke adds the word wife. Like Peter. Again, obviously that would be an itinerant situation. For a period of time. Not an abandonment. Because again, that would not go with chapter 19's beginning, verses 3 through 12. But whatever sacrifice is made, the Lord has taken note. It'll not be in vain. You'll receive a hundredfold in this time and inherit eternal life in the life to come. Hundredfold's massive, eternal life blows a hundredfold away. So I only have time to apply this one way, and it's probably the least way. You ready? The least way to look at this. What if I have to give up my friends and my family and I go serve the Lord and I'm not able to spend time with my brother and my sister? 
and not able to spend time with my father and my mother. Listen to me. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in the last 2,000 years have done, have done exactly that. So I told you I'd come back to Barclay three times. Let me get one. This is the longest, not the best, but the longest one. He says the Christian, this is your note, the Christian will receive far more than ever he has to give up. But what he receives is not new material possessions, that's not the promise, but a new fellowship, human and divine. You enter a new fellowship, human and divine. This is ultimately what the Lord is talking about. He's not saying you, if, if his kingdom and working for the sake of Christ and furthering of his name requires you to leave your father, your earthly father, don't worry, you're going to have a hundred fathers. That's not what it's saying, literally. I have a hundred mothers, but what about spiritual fathers stepping into life and a spiritual mother and spiritual brothers and sisters? So Barclay continues. Let me get the whole thing one more time. The Christian will receive far more than ever he has to give up, but what he receives is not new material possessions, but a new fellowship human and divine. Pay attention. When a man becomes a Christian, he enters into a new human fellowship. This is just the human part. The divine part's better, but this is the least. This is like the lowest part. He says, when a man becomes a Christian, he enters into a new human fellowship. So long as there is a Christian church, it ought to be impossible that a Christian should ever be friendless or lonely. But if I have to leave all that and I'm going... If his Christian decision has meant that he has to give up friends, it ought also to mean that he has entered into a wider circle of friendship than ever he knew before. It ought to be true that there is hardly a town or village or city anywhere where the Christian can be a stranger. For in every town and village and city, there is a church. And into that fellowship, he has a right to enter. You're not losing anything. You're gaining. Guys, I remember going on hunting trips when I was a little kid. We'd go to... Eastern North Carolina, we'd leave Western North Carolina, go six, seven hours away, and we'd go to church on Sunday morning. You couldn't miss our group, like 12, 15 men and burly men and teenage boys and old wood floors, and we'd come creaking in and sit about two-thirds of the back. You, you can't help but notice that we're there that day. Well, it didn't take long. Where are you fellas from? Over well, the mountains, down here, bear hunting, blah, blah, blah. So you're Christians. All of a sudden, we're hanging out for 30 minutes. We never knew these people. All of a sudden, we're friends. This is a unique dynamic that I don't know that exists in anything else. I understand you can go to another country today and you can go belly up at the bar and somebody's having a sorrowful day and you can, you know, commiserate with them. I understand that. But I'm talking about you go anywhere in the world that has true church. You walk in there, another part of the world, just go in and start enjoying the service and see if something doesn't happen. Like, hey, what's, what you doing here? I'm a Christian. But me too. Like, oh, we're brothers and sisters. You sh- it is so unique. We're not giving up anything. We're gaining when we sacrifice. We're gaining. So my last thoughts are these. Look at verse 28. I want to show you. Here it is. Look at verse 28. So what will we get? What we have? Truly I say to you, watch this, in the new. In the new. Look, look at the next words. When the Son of Man will sit. Skip down. You who have followed me will also. You will. So when you will And again, he says, those who have followed me will also, verse number 29, everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, lands, for my my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold. Will receive and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last 
For guys, it's all about faith. This is what it boils down to. What God is saying, will you sacrifice before you see the reward? If you'll sacrifice before you see the reward, even if it causes you to leave houses and brothers and sisters and father and mother and children and spouse for a time and your lands, I'm keeping a record and you're not losing anything. Many who are first will be last in the last verse. Let's just take the note and let next week we'll kick it off with verse 30. Jesus has just given us a paragraph that gives three examples of this paradox. Many who are first will be last. So the Lord's message is right now in this life, it seems like the wealthier first. The wealthy, oh yeah, they're winning. They're way out in front. They're winning. They're first place. But what the Lord is saying is the wealthy appear to be first in this life. The apostles appear to be last. They're going to die a martyr's death. All those who've made these sacrifices for Jesus, they appear to be last. But the Lord's saying, nope, when we get to the kingdom, all of that will be reversed. So the question is, do we truly believe what Christ is saying? When we truly believe what he's saying, then all of a sudden that frees us up. We can make sacrifices knowing that it's not really a sacrifice. I'm not losing anything. It's literally an investment. I'm investing my life with Christ. Heads bowed, eyes closed just for a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed just for a moment. Just before we pray, put both points together. Check your heart. Really try to focus. Like really evaluate. Let's go back and just kind of seal some things in our, our thinking, our belief system. Not talking to me, just you and the Lord. In your heart of hearts, do you truly believe what Jesus says about the dangers of riches? Or what he says about the love of money. Money is not the root of all evil. But the Word of God says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So the Lord has taught us this morning there is great danger in riches. Do you really believe that? Or do you honestly in your heart say, I don't think so. I think I can handle it. Be nothing to it. That's the easiest, best life. Then you're going against what Jesus is saying. Those people have a more difficult position from which to be faithful. A more difficult position from which to be saved. They're in some ways. So they have a great opportunity but in some ways, they have a huge disadvantage. Do you really believe what the Lord says about the reward of sacrifice? Does it move the needle for you? Do you really believe that? If it does, it will affect the choices you make. It will affect your choices. Let me ask this question. Like, really evaluate your heart. How are you doing with being industrious? which God favors and blesses, and yet being content, because those seem to be like two ends of the spectrum. Am I to be content or am I to be industrious? The answer is yes. You are to be productive and industrious while content with what God has given you. Can you honestly say, I've been using my gifts and talents the way the Lord would have me to. I'm being industrious and productive, but at the same time, I'm content. Is your being industrious done from a motive of selfishness so I will have more or is it done from an attitude of Lord I want you to bless my productivity so that I have more ground for you to give so now let's take it to the Lord just before we pray no raised hand just between you and the Lord does anyone this morning need to confess God 
you this morning in the text have exposed my love of money. I, I think about it all the time. I love it dearly. And I'm highly discontent. And I always want more than you've given me. And God, it's sin. And you've shown me that in many ways you're protecting me where I'm at. I may not be ready to move up to, to more than what you've given me. Forgive me for my love of money and my discontent. Then do that right now. While some are doing that, can I ask all of us, are we good stewards of the wealth? You say, well, Jeff, I'm not rich. Here's the question. With what level of wealth God has given you, have you been a good steward? Are you a giver to the level that the Lord has blessed you? And then lastly, I have to ask this. Does your affection for your family, your affection for where you live, make you assume God will never call you to leave your family or where you live? Do you just assume, oh no, God knows I love it right here and he knows I love it with these people. God's will will have to be done right here where I currently am. Or are you totally open as we sang the last two songs? I've decided to follow Jesus. Wherever he leads, I will follow. Can you honestly say you're in the will of the Lord this morning? Or have you been holding back? Let's pray. Father, may we not hold back from you. Lord, I pray that the songs we sang a little over an hour ago, that we would mean them. Lord, may we right now surrender everything to you and follow you because we believe. Lord, we owe you our very life. That's enough. But Lord, let us believe these promises, these great promises. Guarantee that you take an account of all sacrifice and you reward. And we don't really lose anything. It's an investment that's multiplied many times over. Lord, let us live like that in our choices. Even today, even this week, we pray in Christ's name.